Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Amanda Cronkite, Assistant Professor of Political Science at the U.S. Army School of Advanced Military Studies and an Associate Editor of the War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Today, we continue to delve into the similarities and differences between the Departments of State and Defense. We are happy to welcome back to the podcast a Foreign Service Officer with over 20 years experience who has served overseas in Afghanistan, Nepal, Hong Kong, and Greece, among others. He is currently the Consular Section Chief in Harare, Zimbabwe. Please welcome back Mr. Alex Ave Lalamont. Thank you for joining us again, Alex. Thanks again for having me, Amanda. I'd like to start by talking about the different paths toward whatever the government might define as victory. I've often heard military officers talk about wanting to define the problem, get in, fix it, and get out. And that sometimes in the military biz involves violence. Whenever I've heard something like that from an officer, I've pointed out, if state ever leaves someplace, that's the worst outcome. Pulling an ambassador or being expelled is never something state wants to happen. So, and state generally assumes a nonviolent way to get to a resolution. The difference is the timeline. As an FSO who's interacted much with the military, I'd appreciate your thoughts on the differences in, let's call it organizational culture between the two organizations. Yeah, uh, that's a great, a great way to start the second half, I think. Um, I'll start by again referring to the broad similarities uh, in that both sets of organizations are are very mission focused, um, very driven to achieve a mission uh, and and service oriented, um, and and then we can kind of parse out how maybe either by indoctrination or self selection the kind of people who go into whatever organization, state or or, or the military might differ. And of course, it's never a neat comparison because there are plenty of former military people in the state department at all levels. So it's not completely opposite, you know, thing. I, I, there was, I think back in the day, there was an article that someone wrote called defenses from Mars and status from Venus, I think, or, you know, a, a play on that yes, old. I've heard that. Yeah. So, you know, like people are, people contain multitudes, right? So it's not, um, it's not that clean, but it's a good, good kind of rough on a population level, pretty good distinction to make. Um, and, and it's, I kind of alluded to it in the first part of this too, is that military by, indoctrination by personality, what have you, are, are all about achieving discrete and concrete objectives. And you know when you've achieved them because you can, you've taken the territory, you've, you've killed your enemy, you know, be they the micro level at the bigger level than whatever, you know, if you haven't, because you haven't done that yet. Um, and it, State Department uh, is just much more, I mean, when, when I joined the Foreign Service, part of the, the information I got before, as I was considering joining, I said, you have to be comfortable with ambiguity. And that's, uh, certainly, uh, certainly something you have to do over the course of a career. You, you can rarely know anything for certain. A and so I think part of that then is, is as diplomats, we're kind of looking at process management or relationship management and tending to relationships. I know George Schultz, who recently passed away when 
a lot of literature was coming out about about the impact he had. He said he called it watering the garden, I think. And 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 so you're you're always trying to keep relationships up. You're always trying to guide a process, the, the international relations process, let's say. Um, and it's really characterized often by successes that you that aren't super evident because we're not inclined as a species to look at spectacular success very often. You might have like, for example, the end of the Cold War. Well, you knew it was over because there's all these people on the Berlin Wall, you know, sawing it down and jumping on top of it. And you thought, well, that's the end of that. But that's a rare kind of outlier in terms of big success stories. Mostly success stories are really kind of pocketed and become the baseline for what's next. You know, for example, there might be 150 people who die in airline crashes a year, but you might read about all of them. But you don't read about the three million people who obviously pre-COVID who land successfully and walk away from their flights and go on to see their families or whatever. Um, because that's what we're as a species kind of inclined to look out for. So a lot of these things to go back to, like, for example, our multinational multilateral agreements on, on things like civil aviation or on food and agriculture or on, uh, economic policy and the rules of the road for our economy, economic interaction, whatever, are all just kind of a, all about gradually and almost imperceptibly moving things along. And you contrast that with, uh, with the military and when the military gets involved, it's, you know, what you, I mean, again, there's military interaction all over the world every day. That's not violent, but when it, when it's there, it's there and it's violent and it's, you know, you see rockets blowing up buildings, you see war correspondent on the front line and there's bullets flying back and forth in the background. And, uh, and so that, I think that kind of thing you read about a lot more. And if you look at the history of the last 20 years, since, you know, kind of my time in the state department, that's, uh, unless you're kind of a real junkie or so, for this kind of stuff or someone who reads the news diligently to read about foreign affairs, you're going to know about our wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, almost the exclusion of, of many other things in terms of our international relations. And yet those are really two outliers in terms of what we've been doing around the world historically and in that time period. It, uh, you know, we go back to our organizations like diplomats are generally there to, to build relationships and use those relationships to advance our interests in very incremental ways. And soldiers, when we deploy them, are there to keep peace or make war uh, and, and a very different set of objectives. In that way, maybe part of why state people understand less about state maybe is that um, the State Department is dog bites man versus when the military does something, it's man bites dog. It's much it's news as opposed to just every day. Yeah. And and I think also we Americans are very prone to looking at the world in terms of, you know, when we when we think about the kind of these these greater things. We, yeah, we look at it in terms of, of of this lens of our interaction with the world it probably goes back to World War Two almost or Korea or Vietnam. Um, and, and they see us interacting in that way. And again, that is. Yeah, it's it's um, it's out there. It's prevalent, but it is really, a, you know, it is less common. It is, it is an outlier. Um, and, uh, but we're also comfortable, I think, um, with the idea that, that, you know, there can be a solution as, as a society, you know, like we can solve these things, we can fix these problems. And the idea of relationship management isn't, isn't as prevalent, even though it's something everyone does every day, but, you know, our mindset kind of goes more towards, you know, we're problem solvers, right? That's, that's one thing I think most people around the world, when they talk about Americans agree that we, we have this positive attitude, this can do attitude, and we like to solve problems. Um, and military action is one example of there's a problem. Let's use this tool to solve it because again, the problem, you know, pops up and there we are. 
Whereas these little kind of, again, tending the garden is all about making plants grow and, and, and flowers bloom. And that is a very slow process and doesn't yield immediate results. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned the difference in tempo because as we were talking last time we talked to you, the military is very direct and diplomats um, obviously try to be more cautious and uh, careful in their language. And being careful sometimes really, really annoys some military personnel. Um, I know at the school I teach at, we have been trying to get them to stop referring to the room as gentlemen when I'm in it or to use, to use verbs like manning. And this to me seems something very obvious. Um, and some people are annoyed. They don't seem to understand the change. Whereas from a diplomatic point of view, that type of language strikes me as uh, it's almost Hippocratic in the, you know, first do no harm in terms of relationship management. How would you explain to military personnel the importance of that kind of proactive being careful as opposed to just let's fix it? Yeah, I think that really um, highlights the kind of the rub, you know, like that's one of the biggest differences in our organizations and it presents an opportunity, you know, to, for someone who wants to, has an interest in making sure the interests, you know, the, the organizations work well together. That's kind of where that starts is that, and that's how really developing relationships with your, with your military colleagues, understanding that fundamental difference and being able to bridge it is, is absolutely key. And I would actually say that's also true for us with like organizations like the FBI and other law enforcement agencies as well, because there's similar kind of mission focused and outcome oriented groups. But we'll, for the purpose of our discussion, obviously we'll, we'll keep it kind of, you know, focused on, on military. Um, yeah. Actually, though, no, I, 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 I was going to ask you about governmental entities that state works better or worse with than the military. So please feel free to talk about the, any interagency things you've noticed. Yeah. I mean, again, from my perspective, it's just the perspective of one individual, like at the, at the working level, the uniform military and, and, and state generally get along pretty well because of these other kind of bigger issues I've talked about. Um, I would say that may be less so with elements in the law enforcement community and also in the intelligence community. Uh, and then we have, Jung called it the narcissism of small differences, right? It is the U.S. Agency for National Development, which are also largely full of foreign service officers, just like us, who go through a slightly different process and are out there in embassies every day, um, you know, doing, doing great work. Uh, and it's like we're so closely related, we often have these heated kind of, you know, we all complain about each other. Um, but really, we're kind of almost always on the same page with these things. Um, but uh, yeah, so so I would kind of, from my perspective, and, and a lot of it also, especially when you're an embassy overseas, is very personality driven, right? If the if the 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 country team leads, you know, the section chief and agency heads get along at post, you can do a lot because you you can work together in spite of whatever's going on in Washington. So so it often is very personality driven in those contexts. Back in Washington, the personalities that drive it are often the chairman of the joint chiefs or the secretary of defense and the secretary of state. And to the extent to which they get along, then you'll find that the working level gets along. But I think even still, there's, there's a, a decent affinity, um, notwithstanding some of these cultural issues that we're going to dive into in just a second here. So yeah, like just to go back to your, your point about put on your big boy pants, so to speak, and, and, and fixing it. Um, to me, that, that is, is really where, where, you know, if you're people who are interested in making these relationships work, got to start. 
and I remember like when I first got to Bagram, you know, just to recap, I spent two years as a political advisor based at the division headquarters there at Bagram Airfield from 12 to 14. I found it at once refreshing and also kind of astounding how much more direct the military officers were and the military men and women were in general that would say things to each other that we could not say to one another in the State Department. And I found it certainly somewhat refreshing just because I think I'm a more kind of direct personality. And, and um, you know, uh, but by the same token, um, I again, when it's one thing when everyone kind of is in the same and understands and buys into that, but then you're working with another group of people uh, that can be very off-putting, you know, and I, we have a statement, a saying in, in the foreign service where we say, uh, use most of your diplomacy inside the embassy. And, and like you said, to be Hippocratic about it and, and do no harm first, you, you want to make sure you're, you're getting everyone on board with something, right? You know, a lot of what we do kind of operates by consensus, which is inherently slower and inherently involves some trade-offs and inherently also forces you to focus on the larger picture. And like, what am I willing to kind of let fall by the wayside in order to keep advancing the core parts of my goal? And something in that respect that we could borrow, I think, from the military is, you, like, for example, you don't hear, by and large, in the Foreign Service and State Department, you, you don't hear people using the word commander's intent, right? Like, well, number one, we don't have commanders per se, but we're also not great at articulating what is our intent? What is it we want? What is it, you know, that we're trying to get out of this particular engagement or out of this particular, you know, set of engagements or out of our policy or whatever? Even though we have these big strategy documents, um, we don't refer to them nearly as much, I think, as the military might. And so we're not as good at, as saying, well, this is my intent out of this, or this is what the boss's intent is. And let's, well, what do we, you know, if we know that, then we can figure out what trade-offs we need to make. So that, that's kind of something we, I think we can, can adapt. Again, we wouldn't call it the commander's intent per se, but, you know, what, what does the boss want out of this? Um, that we can adapt a little bit from, from our military colleagues. And likewise, I think where I found that my my kind of value I'd came in was when I was willing to say, well, let's, again, let's take a step back. Let's, yes, I understand we want to do this, but if we were looking at our bigger goal, we could probably let a few things go if it still keeps our eye on the prize and, and moving forward. So, so yeah, that is really a, a big, big, big difference. And, and again, I found when I was working, particularly in my first assignment in Afghanistan, when you show that, you know, you show that you have a certain understanding of how government works at any level and you're being asked to help promote governance, Right. Military people who are not asked, you know, have been asked to do something similar, but don't really understand that because that's not what they do normally are really keen to listen to that and, and take that advice. And so you can that's how you can build those bridges. And invariably, whenever the military is being asked to, to do something that trades upon that space that isn't about concrete, definable outcomes, you know, that's where you have an opportunity as a civilian to to build that relationship and, and kind of show that the way forward. In, in such a way that, you know, let's keep our eye on the prize, but remember that, you know, in order to get more people along, we'll get more of what we want. It means we, we may have to give up some of the bells and whistles, but keep the core of our intent intact. One thing that people have, when I've talked to military officers, they are very surprised that foreign service officers don't really, don't hyper-specialize. I know when you were on last time, we talked about, you know, the five kind of different general career tracks, cones, but there is a there is an expectation at state that you will be much more adaptable, kind of be that jack of all trades, versus in the military. I would argue, I would say they're probably people are better at specializing, they're better at planning, they're better at kind of very specific tasks. How would you explain that kind of jack of all trade? For, assuming you agree with me, jack of all trade expectation of an FSO to someone who doesn't really understand much about state. Yeah, I mean, 
I think what you're saying is, I, I think it's generally true. Um, we do over time, you get a bit more specialized in that if you're a consular person, you're expected to kind of move up the ranks in consular management and, and focus on that. Um, uh, likewise with public diplomacy and certainly in like the management field, you know, that is extremely specialized, but by the same token, we have a career kind of progression playbook as we call it, that does stipulate that we need to spend time out of our main functionalities to be a generalist. So yeah, I would say that, that, that is in the main quite true. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, one of the things in the foreign service you have to learn is how to learn. And what I mean by that is you go from one job to the next, the basics may be the same, but the specifics change drastically. And you have to learn how to pick up the kind of salient points quite quickly. And often we don't, and I think this is something where we could be a bit more, um, you know, a bit better at is we don't train each other or ourselves well enough. We don't have, we could be training each other better, ourselves better to, to take on these new assignments um, in, in a variety of ways. So you're expected to learn very quickly what the core points are, kind of what the tent poles are, if you will, and then kind of gradually fill in the rest. And that, I mean, every job you change, even the military do that. But I think a lot of it, if you're infantry, you know, that's going to be fairly standardized. Or if you're military intelligence or if you're you know, pick your MOS, that's going to be fairly similar if you go bounce around within that that field as I, as I see it. So yeah, I mean, you know, what you do then is you become a jack of all trades and what you kind of become relied upon. And, and you know, like like I'm the equivalent of a colonel right now, but I have never commanded the brigade. You know, I, the, the most people I ever managed was 30. So you can't really, you know, our our promotions come not necessarily because of how many people we managed. Um, but those 30 people I were managing were responsible for a unit that made national security decisions every, hundreds of times a day in issuing visas to foreign nationals to come to the United States. And over the course of a year, would adjudicate about 120, 130,000 of those. Each single one of them had national security implications and re required a battery of background checks. And in addition, brought in uh, millions of dollars in revenue to the federal government through the visa fees we collected. So there's still some sophistication and important stuff there. But it's not the same good or bad. It's just different than like a brigade command or something like that. Um, so a lot of where we get our, our and how we're graded and how we're judged for promotion is kind of our wisdom that we've accrued over that time. So, you know, the difference between knowledge and wisdom, you know, would you rather know how to use, you know, know what it takes to run a nuclear power plant or know, have the wisdom to know what to do with nuclear power, right? So we're kind of graded on our ability to accrue that wisdom and apply that wisdom. That's where our value added comes from. And that comes from seeing things over and over in our, in our international relations with a variety of countries and drawing those parallels to, to the situation you're in now. Um, and so if I were to say to a military colleague, yes, we're not as specialized, but you know, let's talk about this, you know, as a kind of breadth of experience. And that's what I want to use to help you guide your operations or help us guide our you know, operations, depending on how we define it. How then do you think the State Department um, passes along cultural norms of the job to to newer officers? Uh, there's a variety of ways. You know, we have our our training. You know, you have your orient, your A100 orientation class when you first join. Um, you are required to take leadership training throughout your career. You do get subject specific, like like for example, there's a political economic trade craft. There's a consular general kind of consular management trade craft. So there's a variety of courses like that, and and you you do touch base on that periodically throughout your career. Then you when you go into an organization, you know, your boss in your first couple assignments does a lot of the work in terms of teaching you what it is to be a foreign service officer and what's expected of you. 
And then at a certain point you become that mentor and it's your responsibility to kind of mentor those around you. Every deputy chief of mission in every embassy. So the number two person in embassy has as a, as an official part of their work requirements is to mentor the first and second tour officers in the embassy or the consulate as that were to, you know, regularly meet with them and, and they do stuff for enrichment and for, for kind of professional ongoing education. And they also talk about, you know, any number of things. So, um, and then there are mentoring opportunities throughout as well that people can sign up for. So kind of a variety of different ways. One thing I'd like to talk about since we've been at war for 20 years now and with President Biden's recent announcement that by September 11th, troops are coming out of Afghanistan, which presumably seems to suggest he's putting state more at the forefront. I recently had a conversation with a colonel who said to me that after 20 years of war, we might need to reteach the military that the chief of mission or the ambassador is the senior person in any country. That because the military has been so visible, that people have forgotten that ideally, and supposed to do it, the military coordinates everything with the embassy. If you were trying to explain the role of the chief of mission to let's say in my case, uh, a room full of majors. How would you explain the chief of missions role? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a couple of ways you go about that. I, I think the first way I would explain it to you is that that person is the president's personal representative in that country and is therefore the, by law, ranking U.S. official in that country to the point that even, for example, I've heard it said, and I, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I've heard it said that like when the assistant secretary of state visits, you know, for African affairs, let's say visits Zimbabwe, that person is still in the hierarchy of things while in country under the ambassador because the ambassador is accredited by the host country as the president's personal representative. So that, you know, for military people who, who all operate in a chain of command, that that's a pretty good explanation. Now, I don't mean to be like, you better do what they say because they're the, you know, they're the chief of mission. They're in, you know, but that establishing it like that is, is a good start. And I think then there's also, you, I mean, it depends on how you develop a relationship with anyone you're talking to. Um, you know, and after years, yeah, like the authorization for use of force, it was different in Iraq and Afghanistan, where there was a lot going on, you know, people prosecuting a war than that in that specific instance, obviously then the, the chief of mission, um, you know, and the, the combatant commanders lines of authority were, were distinct. Um, but as that kind of thing minimizes, as you said, with the troops, you know, withdrawing from Afghanistan and as we're kind of seems to be we're reordering ourselves towards a great power competition, that kind of thing is only going to become more important. And I think it starts with that understanding that, you know, every president, every ambassador who goes to a country has a letter from the president with their instructions. And it says, you are my personal representative. Here's what you may do on my behalf. And that includes, for example, the ambassador without really any pushback if they don't feel like it can send anyone home from post for any reason. They just have to say, I've lost confidence in, in, in this person's ability to do their job and that person has to go with very few limitations. So that's a pretty absolute authority uh, when you think about it. And so, you know, with that kind of authority, you know, in the letter of, it's called the letter of credence that the, that the ambassador gets, you know, and then they go to the host country and the host country then agrees that this person is the United States chief representative in country. Um, and so then from that flows, you know, the articulation of priorities in a country, which is kind of a mission-wide, an embassy-wide exercise um, in which all agencies and sections play a role. So there's always a part on border security. There's always a part on economic growth, let's say. There's a part on defense relations. But that's all kind of 
contained in that that document, the integrated country strategy, which is all available online for every country in the world and, and will include as planning, you know, military, civilian agencies and, and is kind of blessed in, by the ambassador and then and then uh, sent back to Washington for their their take on it. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of how you do it. You build them back into that process, I think. And, and uh, as these these wars in these countries kind of wind down, there are a few instances where where we'd be deploying troops without the awareness of the chief of mission, I think. And that's probably a good way to kind of start it out to frame it as a, as a teaching tool. I'd like to know what you've observed in 20 years about who, who stays in the foreign service versus who leaves. And if you've noticed anything, you mentioned earlier self-selection about particularly who self-selects in any, any differences there? Yeah. Um, uh, I think so. When I joined the Foreign Service, um, there were fewer women joining when I joined than there are now, I think. And, I, and, I, and I'm not an expert in all the stats, so I, I want to just caveat that. But, but as I've seen, like, by and large nowadays, as of la- a few years ago, last thing I read an article about it, I think nowadays roughly 50-50 men and women joining the Foreign Service. Um, I do know that, that over time... Um, you see fewer women getting up to the senior levels, uh, relatively fewer relative to, to the number that come in. I do believe it's still overall higher than it would have been 30 years ago or 25 years ago or something like that. But, but that has been something that has been paid attention to, you know, the historical, uh, the historical stereotype of the foreign service is pale male and Yale. I will say one area of, of, true success is the geographic diversity that's coming to the foreign service is that Ivy leagues. And if you add, you know, like Hopkins, Sice and, and Georgetown school of foreign service, like that kind of those groups, those elite Northeastern universities, they are not, um, they're a minority of, of people who come into the foreign service, which I think is good. You have people come and join in from all over. You know, I came in, I went to a small college in Texas, for example. Um, so that I think is, is a good and positive development. Uh, I do think, the foreign service continues to work hard and need to work even harder to make strides in terms of retaining diverse, uh, a diverse workforce. I think I'm not, I can't speak to the promotion statistics per se, but I do know like retention is an issue and that's really been focused on of late, obviously with everything that's happened in the last couple of years, but it has been historically there. You can go back decades and find these, these analyses that say that, that there's a diversity issue. So it continues to be something that the foreign service needs to work at, but I can say there, there are a lot of efforts continually being put into, to work on that. Um, and so far as the quality of the people coming in, I, I mean, I, I have to say I'm pretty, pretty bullish on it. I mean, we, we, you know, it's very fashionable, maybe a little bit less these days as new generations come to the fore, but like, you know, in the past year it was very fashionable for people to kind of, kind of talk down about millennials and about how quirky they were and how they didn't understand anything, but I've actually managed more than my share of millennials and they've all been excellent. I think we, we still remain selective. And that means that, you know, you still, there's a kind of a spectrum of, of quality within that, but the people that we've been bringing, I've seen have been really great to work with and, and, and give me hope for, for the continued viability of our ability to do our jobs. I think um, we, we do, we need to be more diverse in my opinion, in my personal opinion. And, and I know that the department of leadership agrees with that. It continues to, to work on that. We just appointed a, a chief diversity officer. Um, you know, I think that's a good, a good way to go. Um, and an awareness of that and an attempt to, to kind of 
work that, bend that into the right direction. Yes, I, I did see the news about the chief diversity officer and I was, and then I, I was reminded that the new, the new deputy secretary is the first woman to hold that job. That was part of the news when it came out. And I, I think it's certainly fair. And talking about millennials, um, Gen Z is even more diverse. So presumably if things are on a good track, they will get better, hopefully. So Alex, I'd like to go back to something we were talking about earlier, which is planning. And I'd like to ask you what you see in terms of similarities and differences and how state and defense approach planning. Yeah, uh, we have a lot to learn about planning as an organization, I think. And I don't necessarily think that the State Department, because our, again, our our aims are often process management or relationship management and not new initiatives or objectives, we don't need necessarily be so developed at planning, but I think we could do a better job at planning. Um, and, and you know, I remember when I, you know, even in both times I've, I've worked very closely with military in Afghanistan, I'd go in and talk to the planners um, and just the way they plan for things. It's, it's, it's like a, you get a master's in that, you know, and they're, you have like a, a captain who's doing it or, or, you know, and their senior NCO is, is heavily involved in it. And, and um, you know, and up the chain it goes and they all become very, you know, the further up they go, the more, more military leaders, both in the, the NCO Corps and in the officer corps just really digest planning. Um, and we don't. And so I think a lot of times you might find, and, and a parallel to that, or a kind of a, a corollary to that is that military just has a, so many more resources to throw at problems than the state department does. Um, and so you, you kind of, you, you turn that into an organizational culture, you know, a lot of times the military goes, well, what is your planning about this? And I'm like, dude, we just thought about it today. We just, for the first time you're, we're hearing about it. Planning will be me and a couple other people, you know, going going off somewhere and, and thinking about it and writing down a few notes, um, you know, for for that and 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 not devoting an entire office's worth of resources for three different cycles about it and to plan for multiple different scenarios of the same outcome. Um, so it's kind of foreign to us, and it, it and and that along with the the massive resource disparity, then it's like when all these plans get going, these exercises get going as a state department person, you know, when I was involved, for example, in, in, in one of the, in doing a, a mission rehearsal exercise or mission readiness exercise, MRX for, for one of the units who's coming out to Afghanistan, I was kind of fig- trying to figure out because I wasn't really how that, aware how that worked and, and the process there, like, where do I can, where can I slot myself to be of the most value to the most people given there's one of me and we've got rooms of people working on these things. Uh, and, and that's an area where, again, you, you as a civilian or as a state department person, it's like you just have to kind of learn as you go. I refer you to, you know, the ability to kind of learn how to learn. That's another perfect example. And and what happens, I think, is because of that, then some commander will ask a question. And because of the timelines driving this thing, they don't have an answer. They're going to make an assumption and go. And the assumption may not be the correct one. Uh, and the assumption may have been one that that could have benefited from the input of a, of a, a diplomat or a, a development official or, or who has some knowledge and, and can guide that process. And therefore, you know, once the assumption goes in and you plan based on assumptions, the planning kind of veers off by some kind of factor, um, all because no one knew who to ask where the guy was or, you know, th- those relationships were never made. Um, and like kind of on the big picture of these things, as we, we kind of retool for the next generation of, you know, foreign affairs um, after kind of pivoting away from the forever wars, the small wars, whatever you call them. Um, that's, I think, an area where where a hefty dose of really good 
you know, interagency coordination at any level uh, can really be beneficial towards policy formulation. One last question. You mentioned uh, great power competition, which is, has been everybody's favorite cliche for the past few years. How do you think state and defense might see great power competition differently? Well, I'd like to turn back to what you kind of led off with. Uh, the Department of Defense sees great power and plans for great power competition in terms of actual conflict. And I think our whole mission at the State Department in terms of great power competition is how to advance our goals and win without that conflict. Um, so it's it's like fundamental opposite sides of the coin, really. So, you know, when I, I read these, you know, you, read, you can read these op plans or whatever about, about a conflict in Asia, right? A conflict between China and Taiwan or a conflict in North Korea, a conflict wherever, you know, and my first thought is, man, I hope we don't get to that point. And of course, everyone does, right? <laughs> you know, but it's the military's job to plan for how to win that. And our job is to plan so that we don't have to enter, you know, like almost like if you have to go into that conflict, we've lost already. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's where diplomacy fits. That's what diplomacy is. You know, if you want to be like, there's that, that, and I don't, I don't agree with the statement at all, but there's this, this cliche about diplomacy is the art of saying nice doggy until you can find a stick. You know, that almost implies that like, it's like holding these off until the military can come in there and save a day. I, I would say that like diplomacy is the art of, of saying here, Fido, have a seat and, you know, eat from my hand instead of needing to say nice doggy or whatever. Um, so our planning is all premised on not needing conflict and, 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 and avoiding conflict and, and asserting our interests, whatever that may be, you know, successfully without conflict, you know, it may be great to, and successful to use the, 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 let's say threat or the, you know, make an allusion towards the, our, our great capacity to prevail in that conflict as a deterrent to conflict. Absolutely. As, as that kind of, as that one way to make our, you know, advance our interest in other ways as a deterrent, but we're just as invested in advancing the American interest. And I think as statecraft and diplomacy is, you know, advancing the American interest and it doesn't have to be like conflict is almost inherently uh, zero sum, right? If we triumph, you've lost, but diplomacy, in my opinion, and, and I think the last, you know, post the history of our, our, our world post-World War II is pretty clear evidence that diplomacy is not zero sum. In fact, there can be multiple winners to this competition. So when I say prevail and let's say our great power competition with China, that doesn't mean that China somehow brought to heel. What it means is that we've come to some point where we've expressed our interests and the world is buying into our interests and we've shelved, you know, we shelved kinetic conflict in, in favor of that. And the world continues to prosper as it has and remain peaceful. Um, so, so that's what we plan for. And I remember once a, a guy I worked with in Afghanistan, who was a special forces Lieutenant Colonel, he said, when it comes to these things, what we're doing in civil affairs, he was, had moved over into the civil affairs world. He said, we really lose if there's a conflict. Our whole point is like preventing the conflict. Um, even at that, in, in, the, in those circumstances. And, and, and I remember thinking about it, it kind of struck me and has stuck with me ever since, obviously. Um, but yeah, that's for us, that's the, in terms of a tool of statecraft, that's the game is to, to win by advancing our interest. And that can mean that other, other states win as well without needing to have the big guns, literally the big guns brought out and, and, and engage in a kinetic conflict. Wow. You have also referenced realism, liberalism, and constructionism, which is another very important thing. The Army War College always tries to oh. push on people that is important. Well, I knew I was a realist. 
All right. That seems like a good, a good, uh, a good moment to end on. Thank you, Mr. Alex Avelalamut for joining us today on A Better Peace. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please send us your comments on this program and all the programs and send a suggestion for future programs and rate and review this podcast on your podcaster of choice, which helps others to find us. We're always interested in hearing from you. Until next time, from the War Room, I'm Amanda Cronkite. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.